Hi, this is Ellie Fishman. Welcome to part three on the state of the art CT, what's happening. And the last two talks, we spoke about some of the changes in CT, some of the concepts, and some of the applications. And let's just finish up part three looking at some applications. And amongst the many applications we talk about that CT has really made an impact and is continuing to make an impact is on pancreatic mass detection both on the detection of mass, but also on classification of masses. Um, some of our talks that are be coming up over the next few weeks speak about cystic pancreatic lesions, which we've seen about 5% of patients, and how we use CT to really manage these patients in terms of follow-up, determining what patients should get surgery. We'll talk about that. But in pancreatic cancer, we often do CT, obviously, when there's suspicion of pancreatic cancer, back pain, abdominal pain, weight loss, and CT, in the old days, we pick up masses 5 centimeters, 4 centimeters. Now we pick up masses just by looking for changes in glandular enhancement. We look for subtleties, including transition of duct, particularly pancreatic duct. And we look for other findings. And I'll show you some examples. Here's a case. You can see a dilated pancreatic duct, and there's very subtle changes in the body of the pancreas. And we look a little bit more carefully and get an oblique plane through the duct, you can see the transition and the abrupt cutoff of the duct. When you see the duct cutoff, there has to be a tumor present. Yes, you can deal with a stricture, but invariably you're talking about a tumor, and you need to prove that there is no tumor present. Well, in this case, you see textural changes seen and very nicely defined the presence of a tumor. Obviously, it's better to pick up these tumors early. There's a better chance about resectability. But even sometimes small tumors have distant metastasis or locally invasive. Another example, here we talk about the perfusion changes. You can see the tail of the pancreas has decreased enhancement, dilated pancreatic duct, atrophy distally, and a transition right in the body-tail junction by a small one-centimeter tumor seen there or seen here as well. Very nice example of a small pancreatic cancer. It's not just the pancreatic duct we look at, we look at the common duct. Nice example, dilated common duct, dilated gallbladder, abrupt cutoff of the common duct. You can see there's a mass present which is invading into the duodenum second portion. Nicely shown also on venous phase imaging. Now, it looks to be that this patient might be resectable based on the vessels, but unfortunately in the dome of the liver, you see the liver metastasis present, making this patient unresectable. Neuroendocrine tumors, you may resect with liver mets, but adenocarcinoma, um, there's just no reason to resect because the patient has systemic spread of disease. And again, you can see same case, nicely shown, the common duct as well as the pancreatic duct, Good example of a double duct sign. You see the primary tumor on venous phase imaging is hypodense. You see the invasion of a duodenum. All classic findings. Interestingly, this patient would have been resectable if it wasn't for the liver. Another example, dilated pancreatic duct, glandular atrophy, and there's a change in enhancement, although subtle, but there's a mass present. Abrupt cutoff. There's the tumor. We'll look at it a little bit closer. We'll just zoom up on it. And there it is, less than a two centimeter lesion. Classic pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Because we're so good at picking up lesions now and in classifying lesions, we have tremendous impact. One thing we do, which um, it becomes very important, is laparoscopic distal pancreatectomy and now Whipple's procedure. Our surgeons tell us that if it wasn't for the angiographic mapping, those studies 
would be impossible. Also, in terms of dividing patients into different subgroups with pancreatic cancer, we would talk about resectable and non-resectable. Now there's this borderline group, uh, and the borderline group actually has findings that previously would have probably put them in the unresectable category, such as encasement of a short segment of the hepatic artery without celiac invasion, tumor abutment of the SMA but under 180 degrees, and short segment occlusion of the SMV portal vein or their confluence. Now, chemotherapy, radiation therapy will often be done, and these patients can potentially become resectable. So it's this advances in pancreatic imaging techniques and surgical techniques that has allowed this blurring between resectable and advanced disease, this borderline resectability. And again, the importance commented in this article of neoadjuvant therapy, gemcitabine-based chemotherapies, for example, but other therapies as well can indeed become very important. So it's this combination of changes, and radiology plays a major part in those changes. Now, it's important also to make the point that you need to be really good at looking at the images because you can see from this study at Hopkins that in about 20% of cases, when we restudied the patient or redid the imaging, it became very clear these patients had different diseases. Sometimes patients came with adenocarcinoma, it was really lymphoma, came with adenocarcinoma, it was a GIST tumor, came with a GIST tumor or a suspected neuroendocrine tumor, and it was a GIST tumor, or just the staging. So significant difference in interpretations, and we were proven correct, obviously, by surgery or follow-up. But again, it's a matter of being able to read the studies and do the studies correctly. And you can see with the change in management, the majority of cases, 18.7, was because of radiology. Pathology also had some impact, but radiology was number one. We mentioned detection of vascular lesions like neuroendocrine tumors. CT now is 95 plus percent accurate. You can see the lesion projected off the body tail junction, shown better with 3D mapping here. Very nice classic neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas. And here again, you can see the lesion just sitting in the middle of the pancreas anteriorly. Boy, very easy to miss the lesion. I showed you a couple cases before looking at the liver, so let me just make a couple quick points. We talk with advanced imaging of detection and definition, this idea of lesion analysis based on enhancement features, and being able to be very specific. So obviously something as simple as a cyst, water density well-defined in this patient with fatty infiltration of the liver, nicely shows you the splaying of the vessels that are present, or this case with puddling, very classic hemangiomas, no problem in diagnosis. The lesions have a signature, and when you follow them up, the lesion will fill in. Very classic for hemangioma. I showed you before examples of focal nodular hyperplasia, mentioning these lesions are very vascular, often have a feeding vessel, but their vascularity is the IVC, not the aorta, in terms of uh, comparing densities. So here's a good example of FNH. Compare it to the IVC perfectly the same density. It's not the same density as the aorta. 
and then these lesions do wash out and become isodense. Often you may only see the small scars. So you can see early it's easy to see these lesions. Later on it's very difficult, if not impossible. And that's the reason we often miss these lesions on CT, because we would scan in later phases. The issue of phases I mentioned before is so important because if I was going to scan for hepatoma and had but one phase, I would be doing arterial phase. The other phases like venous are helpful for vascular invasion, particularly of the portal vein and IVC. And delayed phase imaging can be helpful at times separating hepatoma from cholangiocarcinoma and at times even detecting the lesions. But the arterial phase is where you need to be showing you the vascular involvement of the hepatic artery and look at the difference between arterial and venous phase in terms of the definition of the lesion. This timing issue is so important, and we spoke a lot about that at the meeting, because looking at normal kidneys with volume rendering or MIP, and then you go to the neovascularity of a tumor, it's been shown now that this is a great predictor of how you will respond to different chemotherapies. It's been shown that this is probably going to be a clear cell renal cell carcinoma, and you can predict which chromosomal abnormalities are present based simply on the vascularity of the lesion. We also talked about the importance of delayed phase imaging, because in this case, there's something on delayed phase imaging or CT urography infiltrating the left renal pelvis which is shown best on the, or better on the coronal view. Look at the upper pole calyx, it's filled in, and then you can see the amputation proximally. Very nice example of transitional cell carcinoma. Okay, very nice study. We talk about the use of imaging, not only in the abdomen and chest, but in the brain, a basilar artery aneurysm, where now it's been shown CT angiography is as accurate or more accurate than classic angiography, particularly for small aneurysms, nicely shown in this case, or in this case, a larger aneurysm showing the extent of the aneurysm, showing the mapping of it in 3D, all very, very nicely shown across a spectrum of images. We spoke before a little bit on runoffs of dual energy. Dual energy works especially well in the head to remove the bony structures from the vessels, so it's easy to see the circle of Willis and the intracranial circulation very nicely seen on these images. Let me just bring up cardiac CT. I mentioned that the uh, temporal resolution is so critical in cardiac CT. Uh, no surprise, CT is very good. 99% negative predictive values, high accuracy for looking at stenosis. It's becoming a major uh, ER study, particularly low-risk patients. That high negative predictive value works wonders in discharging patients. A range of imaging techniques, uh, again, gated acquisition, lower heart rates, fast injections, the ability to do 3D mapping or segmentation, to look at each of the individual coronary arteries to determine whether there is or is not stenosis, whether the vessels originate or terminate correctly are all important things. This case, for example, nice example of calcified and non-calcified plaque with a little better than 50% stenosis. And here it is in two more perspectives. Or this case where the computer automatically analyzes the plaque, 
or tries to analyze the plaque. Again, some of these techniques are a bit cumbersome and not very reproducible, but I show this to make the point that there's lots of work going on trying to do quantitative analysis of the coronary arteries, and the work is coming along. Some things work well, like left ventricular volumes. Computers can automatically calibrate them and then look at the mapping. We talk about computer-assisted imaging for PEs and lung nodules and for colon. One of them that we've used is for looking at the coronary arteries. In a sense, the way we use it is as a second reader. Uh, it's pretty easy to do. It does everything by itself. It takes about five minutes. It's from Arcadia Medical Imaging. Again, works very nicely. Some of the thoughts perhaps would be helpful in the ER setting. There's some issues with the software, but in general, it works very nicely. Uh, and again, I use it as a second reader. The computer is automatically segmenting the images and processing the images and automatically looking for um, key stenoses, which it will then alert you to. And the experience of these techniques has been relatively good. There's been several articles. This one's more recent from Arnaldi talking about its high negative predictive value and used as a second reader. Or this article by Halpern also that was very positive. The workflow is pretty simple. Here's a good example of a case I did. Extensive calcified plaque LAD shown through a number of perspectives. Trying to quantify and analyze the degree of stenosis. Here's the report screen. You can see in red, I blocked out the names of patients, but in red is this patient. Red means there's pathology of greater than 50% stenosis present. Green means there's less. And you can see the computer shows you where the stenosis is, lays out each of the vessels in their entirety. So it's something you can use also as a way of supplementing what you're doing in terms of interpretation. Now we know there are reasons for failures in coronary CTA, but faster scanners like the flash, uh, better techniques are making the the numbers of failures decreasing, and I think that will continue to happen. So when you look at 64-slice CT, it's a term I've often used of disruptive technology. The key thing for us as radiologists is the integration of our newest imaging systems with software allowing the best interpretation, then delivering that message to the referring physician. Danger of radiology, Gary Glazer, who passed away this year, wrote about the invisible radiologists that were in danger of becoming commodities. People in my course mentioned that, that perhaps uh, radiology has no future because it'll be outsourced to someone who's willing to read it much cheaper. That indeed is happening, but hopefully um, we're going to really focus on quality and that will make a big difference. Remember we said at the beginning that radiology asset management is critical from the right data to the right person, um, on the right device, at the point of care. Very important. It all plays into this idea of personalized radiology, the right test for the right patient, perform correctly, interpret it correctly, and then information rapidly used to optimize patient management. We talk about this quote from a couple years ago about the changes that are occurring in CT and how it's impacting everything. One of the big changes that's really taken effect the past year is the iPad. Now, I know you've seen iPad commercials like crazy, but the iPad allows the ability for us to look at images remotely 
interact with the images at blazingly fast speeds, and it's changing how we do business. There's no compromise in image quality. Everything is touch screen, very fast interactivity. And for most people, it's actually faster, about a thousand images in two seconds or less than most of their pack systems. And we can look at this on an iPhone as well, or, and even an iTouch, but it's the iPad that's most exciting because of the real estate. This idea about the visualization everywhere and anywhere by you or by your colleagues. So if you don't do 3D imaging, your colleagues may decide to do it on their own. I think the iPad is really a game changer. It seems everybody is carrying it around. Now we have massive access to information. Now iPads can be bad. You could be checking your email 100 times an hour, but when used correctly, it enhances your capabilities. That brings up the topic of education, and I just wanted to address it. When I was at the meeting, I said this is the ideal way to learn. Textbooks and webcasts and the web and mobile devices and everything else are good, but they really don't make up for a face-to-face -face meeting where you're spending three or four days talking with your colleagues, listening to lectures, asking questions, and really being immersed in the topic. There's some fear that CME meetings will, will disappear, but I don't think so. We provide education on the web, CT is Us, where you're probably listening to this lecture. From the cases we present, here's 146,000. Quite frankly, now it's 154,000 uh, cases. We have lectures every week. We have cardiac material. We have tons of different material across the board, and our product is used everywhere. We have over 110 countries. Here's just a typical day. U.S. is number one, but only half the market. Then there's you know, England and India and the like. So it's something that we do provide to you, as well as things like CTSS, the iQuiz, or our program on contrast media. So we try to find you everywhere and everywhere during the year. And I always like to make that point at this lecture. We hope to see you at our meetings, and we hope the other material kind of fills you in in between meetings. I mentioned the change. Here's a list of mobile devices, including the one that we've been using at Hopkins. But whatever device you use, just tremendous capabilities will be coming along in the future where we can look at everything with the same quality that we could do on a classic workstation. It goes back to, in some ways, this quote from Steve Jobs. People think focus means saying yes to the thing you've got to focus on, but that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundreds of other good ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. And I think hopefully uh, we can carry that on in radiology where we need to really focus on the job at hand, which is clinical excellence, in this case, really optimizing CT scanning. And hopefully, you know, as you listen to the lectures every week and as you come to our courses, uh, that goes a long way to helping you uh, really do the optimal uh, you can do in your practice. And with that, have a great day.